ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. For a quarter of a century, this corner of the Northwest Cape has been as American as apple pie. The town of Exmouth was once known as Little America. A military facility was there, based somewhat strangely, outside the small coastal town in WA. The Harold Holt Naval Communications Base was a monument to the cooperation between Australia and the US during the Cold War. And the Americans working at the naval base used to drive around the coastal town in their Cadillacs. Can you imagine what a sight? And on the site, they could play baseball or they'd catch up over a brewski at the bowling alley, which they paid for in US dollars. Then in 1992, this small slice of American military intelligence was handed back to Australia. Exmouth was just a fishing village before the Americans arrived. For local businesses, the fear now is that it may return to being little more. Yeah, I think we're going to have to focus more on the tourist industry, that's for sure. Exmouth has been home to a generation of Americans. Some said today they may be going home, but a big part of them would always remain true blue, dinky-dye Australian. I'm just afraid that Americans won't know what I'm saying because I've picked up all the Australian slang, you know. I, I'm very, very fond of this place. I, I've been raising small children and it's, it's certainly the safest community I've ever lived in. It, a plan under the AUKUS deal will see the US and Australia once again join forces in Exmouth. But this time, their eyes are up into space. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. The AUKUS agreement we confirm here in San Diego represents the biggest single investment in Australia's defence capability in all of our history. In March this year, to enormous fanfare, President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced the AUKUS agreement in San Diego. The spend is potentially $300 billion. What this will mean to regional communities around Australia is now starting to come to light. In Exmouth and WA, some of those dollars will be spent on a high-tech space tracking facility, bringing the US once again back to the town. The facility called DARK, or Deep Space Advanced Radar Capability, will provide 24-hour global coverage to detect and track and identify objects deep in space. Australia's space commander, yes, we have one of those now, her name is Kath Roberts, says space is increasingly an area of military risk because of the boom in satellites in our orbit. Xander Sapsworth-Collis has this story from Exmouth. A World Heritage coastline, whale shark diving, snorkelling and now a deep space tracking facility. One of West Australia's premier tourist towns is getting a military upgrade. The Defence White Paper has continually said that you know, more investment needs to be made in the north of Western Australia as far as uh, defence goes, as far as border border control goes. That was Shah of Exmouth President Matt Nicola talking about the high-tech deep space tracking facility that's being built in the area under the AUKUS partnership. And the facility comes through the American-led deep space radar capability program and Councillor Nicola says it makes perfect sense why Exmouth was chosen. Exmouth is the natural best geographic location, having 270 degrees of the ocean, closest place to Singapore Harbour, um, you know, and, and obviously hundreds of millions of offshore assets sitting there as well. 
Located over 1,200 kilometres north of Perth, Exmouth is home to the world-famous Ningaloo Reef, which gets more than 100,000 visitors per year. And with an economy heavily built on tourism, Councillor Nakula says the town will welcome new business opportunities. There's obviously a huge workforce required to come to do that, um, a lot of construction and, and afterwards even defence personnel living in town to run it. And obviously we're, you know, hopefully getting some land release shortly happening in town in the next few months and, and an opportunity for Defence to come and in, invest and build some houses and create some more housing stock and um, obviously inject a lot more money into the local economy. Some residents are getting excited as well. Hexmouth IGA owner Trevor Clark says the facility could bring more customers into his store. You know, you're going to have workers here and you're going to have people coming here to, to be looking after that. So, you know, people coming in to get lunches in our, in our shop and in the, in the town itself, those sort of people are going to come and get lunches. And, yeah, so that is positive for, in that sense. And while tourism is the dominant industry currently, Exmouth has a long defence history. The area hosted a military base in the Second World War and currently contains the Harold E. Holt Naval Communication Station and the Royal Australian Air Force Lamont Base. Exmouth resident Heather Gerard says she believes the defence industry adds more to the town's sense of community than the tourism industry does. You've got the Americans that participate in the sports. You know, they they contribute to coaching. They play in the teams. Their children go to school. They're, they're part of the community. While they're here, they fully embrace living as part of this community. The precise cost and size of the facility is not yet known or how many ADF personnel will work there. Australia's contribution to operate and sustain the site is estimated to be nearly $2 billion over 20 years. Northwest Defence Alliance Chair Peter Long says it's a welcome investment. The wealth that's actually exported from the Northwest and the Pilbara in particular is something like 40% of the whole nation's export income. So that's a lot of money which flows back to both the federal government and the state government. Um, if we were to ever lose that or these industries were actually shut down um, because of conflict, it would be a huge impact, a huge impact on the uh, whole of the Australian country. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is we're, we're in the same time zone as China. We're closer to Southeast Asia than anywhere else in Australia and particularly in the Northwest. Um, if there was going to be any conflict ever, it would come our way first and uh, therefore it's obvious that we should have defence capability up here uh, closest to where any attack would come from. But not everyone is so quick to welcome the announcement. With many details still unknown, Director of Protect Ningaloo, Paul Gamblin, says protection of the World Heritage Environmental Site where the facility will be located is a priority. Defence is operating in this environment, which is incredibly fragile, already showing quite significant pressure from from contemporary human use, and so its obligation really is to is to is to manage down its environmental impact while also achieving its own goals. And so, hearing about this new project means that I guess the obligation on it is even greater. And and at very least, we would expect it to confirm its support for conservation of Exmouth Gulf, which the WA government has identified as being of global importance under pressure and needing protection. And so Defence needs to show that it will step in and really help conserve those those areas that are under most pressure in the region. Xander Sapsworth Collis reporting there from Exmouth. This is ABC Australia Wide. They're often referred to as the angels in the sky, but right now nurses with the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Queensland are fighting for better pay and conditions. They've begun taking protected industrial action after they failed to reach an agreement with management after eight months 
of negotiations. Lydia Burton has this story. The RFDS is one of the largest aeromedical organisations in the world. Last financial year, its planes spent more than 24,000 hours in the air, helping Queenslanders with emergency care, primary health care, oral health, mental health and more. For people like Lucy Westcott from Huendon, she has a peace of mind knowing she can access the RFDS if her son, who lives with a genetic condition, takes a turn. Without the RFDS, we wouldn't be able to live where we live due to our son's complex needs. But the RFDS in Queensland is currently having an internal dispute, with nurses taking protected industrial action to fight for better pay and conditions. The Queensland Nurses and Midwives Union says RFDS nurses are paid less than their Queensland health colleagues. Secretary of QNMU, Kate Veach, says that's something they'd like to see change. They do want better paying conditions and they want a a better work-life balance. RFDS nurses love what they do. They're very highly qualified and they're very dedicated to the communities that they serve. They're seeking a level of respect and recognition from their management for the work that they do do. But they're also seeking that management help them manage fatigue uh, and burnout by changing things like roster patterns to be able to include all the hours they're on call and waiting in a roster. Currently, members are to be available for up to 13 hours on a rostered shift, but they're only paid for 10.13 of those hours. So, for example, they might be starting a morning shift uh, and that on-call period before that shift will start a couple of hours or up to a couple of hours before then. So they might be called in because there is an urgent need uh, and that's one of the, the key issues that they were trying to resolve. And they see a very easy solution for this is to change the length of their rostered shifts from 10 hours up to 12 hours to be able to accommodate the time that they are working, the time they're waiting for a call, um, as well as for them to be able to manage their work-life balance with a roster. So um, it seems like a pretty reasonable solution, uh, but management have resisted this. In terms of more pay, what is it that they want? Do they want to be on par with Queensland Health colleagues? Do they want more? Because uh, one of the things they say is that they have, you know, multiple qualifications being both Mm -hmm. a nurse and midwifery degrees. What are we talking? Are we talking a huge pay rise? Uh, Look, what they're seeking is, you know, they want remuneration that recognises their great skills, uh, but also um, links them with equivalent pays to others. So at the moment, RFDS has offered a 13% pay rise over three years. And at the moment, that still brings them not in line with uh, the public sector. But the RFDS nurses, to their great credit, have been negotiating around other things that could also be done to support them um, outside of just their pay. So while they're, they're seeking more remuneration in their pay, they're really keen to see other conditions improve. And one of those conditions is their rostering patterns. RFDS management refutes a lot of those claims. Lee Poole is the Executive General Manager of Nursing and Clinical Services with the RFDS in Queensland. Our nurses are paid for all of their time. Um, That's quite clear under our current enterprise agreement, clearly stated by the Commission when they approved the current agreement, and that hasn't changed in our proposed agreement. Our nurses are fully 
paid for their availability and for the hours that they work. The other thing that's been raised is that a nurse working for the RFDS is paid less than a nurse working in the public sector system for Queensland Health and that they'd like to be on par or close to their you know, public sector colleagues. Do you think that's a fair request? What I would say is that that claim is simply not true. What we have offered our nurses is comparable across the sector, including public sector, um, and the offer is fair and reflects the value of our, our nurses. What is a nurse with the RFDS paid? Our offer is that they will be paid between $140,000 and $150,000 per year before super, depending on their qualifications and how long they've been working with us. I doubt that anyone can genuinely claim that that offer is substandard. We're a charity. We've been around for 100 years. We want to be around for 100 more, but we need to be financially sustainable. We don't have the funds to be able to pay over and above what Queensland Health and others are paying. We're comparable in the majority of our nurses would get paid more than what they would otherwise get paid in Queensland Health. But what's being asked for is well in excess of that. Lee Poole, Executive General Manager of Nursing and Clinical Services with the RFDS in Queensland. Meanwhile, for the people in the bush, the service the RFDS and its staff provide is invaluable. The Westcott family from Huendon have had to use the service a number of times. Lucy and her husband Hugh explained that without these highly skilled nurses, they couldn't live where they live. I think there would be, you know, hundreds of, if not thousands of people in the state of Queensland and across Australia that owe their life to, you know, them being taken care of by the RFDS. Like, it is it is essential. There's a lot of, you know, you hear, hear about different people donating money to it all the time and, you know, I, I can see why because they are so essential to us. So we actually have a son that's disabled, so he's three, um, and is often pretty much nearly every three to four weeks there, we were using RFDS to um, get him flown to Townsville just because the hospital out here don't have the capabilities to look after him here. So RFDS um, often come out and rescue him and take him to Townsville. And majority of the time he ends up in Picus. How important do you think it is then as a service? Oh, I think the service is essential. It's saved his life a number of times. Lucy Westcott from Hewenden, ending that story there from Lydia Burton. And you're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. There are calls for more support for specialised healthcare in rural Australia for people suffering from Parkinson's disease. It's the second most common neurodegenerative disorder globally, and it's estimated there are 200,000 people with it in Australia. Former agricultural consultant Marcia Isbister came to Australia from the United States 30 years ago to be a farmer's wife and her life changed dramatically again when she was diagnosed with Parkinson's. She spoke to Undine Slack-Smith in Dubbo in regional New South Wales. Well, it's, it's different for everybody. I've learned that. Um, I got diagnosed in um, July 4th, 2020, which is the American Independence Day, which is... The irony is not lost on me, believe me. I lost my um, total independence, I think. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around what's happened to my life. And um, Parkinson's itself shows on people with tremors. And uh, a lot of people get, they freeze up. And that's what I do. 
Um, if I don't have my levodopa medication, I just slow up and I can't can't move. I just can't move and like a tin man. And um, it, it took one whole year to get the diagnosis for Parkinson's, and it's like that for a lot of people. So there's a lot of people waiting for a diagnosis right now, I'm sure. And uh, did you realize that there are 500 people just in this Dubbo area alone that have Parkinson's disease? I had no idea. That's, that's massive. It is massive for this population and everything. It's a big area, but still it's a, it's a big thing too. And it seems like it's more prevalent all the time. And no one can, no one can say why. Marsha attributes the year-long wait in getting a diagnosis to the different ways Parkinson shows in patients. It, it manifests itself in back aches, in, in uh, I had a bit of a tremor in one leg, I had repetitive, um, like a repetitive injury thing on my wrist. You know, I'd start stirring a pot of something on the stove and I couldn't stop. And um, there's just little things like that. And you think, what in the heck's wrong with me? So I went through two neurologists, uh, a couple GPs, and finally uh, a fellow up here at the Allied gave me my diagnosis, a GP. And he says, do this, do that. And he, he knew immediately that I had it. She says that support networks for patients are important. In her instance, she gets by with the support of her husband, George. I think it's really important to talk to somebody that you know so well. Mm-hmm. We've been together for 31 years, so I guess, guess we know pretty, each other pretty well now. But um, yeah, he, he's my, my measure. She's also of the belief that more support is needed for communities dealing with Parkinson's in rural areas. This is a sentiment that Coral Moncrief of Tamora shares. Oh, definitely um, more support with Parkinson's nurses, I think, where, uh, like, there is a Parkinson's nurse in Wagga, but uh, she covers a very large area, so it's very hard for her to get around and see everybody and, you know, um, phone calls to her, and sometimes you don't get a reply from her straight away if you have to leave a message. Uh, which is, you know, something that would be good if you could have a little bit more support out in the country areas. Her husband, Farmer Gary, was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2014. We do have a son who um, works on the farm. Well, he runs the farm and had run the farm for a few years before Gary was diagnosed. Uh, uh, Gary's workload had slowed down a bit probably before he was diagnosed. But there were certain things on the farm that he still really enjoyed going out and trying to do. He he um, loved uh, truck driving at harvest time, taking grain to the silos and that sort of thing. And he was able to continue that for a few years, but he couldn't see the, the long days out that he used to see. Coral established a local support group shortly after Gary's diagnosis. And despite Gary losing his battle to Parkinson's two years ago, she still remains heavily involved in the group and regularly passes on her knowledge. She says it's her way of giving back to the rural community. Oh, it, it is just so wonderful. It is great value. It is really good because you are getting information from people who have actually experienced the same thing as you've experienced. 
Dr. Shanna Cargill was a postdoctoral research fellow at Charles Sturt University with the Ageing Well and Regional and Rural Australia Group. She says a 2019 Victoria study showed a higher prevalence of Parkinson's in a couple of areas. There was really no difference in terms of the reported percentage prevalence between urban and uh, rural areas. When they kind of drilled down to look at the agricultural determinants, they did find a small clustering where um, there were a couple of local government areas shared a border and they had higher percentage prevalence than the overall state average of Victoria. Dr Cargill says that another problem in rural areas is a lack of access to specialist care, but telehealth could provide a solution to that problem. She says two specialist neurologists from Westmead have collaborated with the Mid-North Coast Local Health District to get services to regional Australians. They're currently trialling um, a hybrid telehealth clinic, so basically linking those city services for people in the bush. Dr Shanna Cargill finishing off that story by Undine Slacksmith from Dubbo. The stretch of coastline between Broome and Exmouth in WA's north is the most cyclone-prone in Australia. In January, ex-tropical cyclone Ellie brought a devastating flood to the central Kimberley region, while in April, cyclone Ilsa destroyed the Pardue Roadhouse between Broome and Port Hedland. And although forecasters expect fewer cyclones than usual this season, locals are still preparing for the worst. As Eddie Williams reports, northern communities have some unique ways of getting ready. Well, nobody sells them. You can buy On a them steamy Friday afternoon in Broome, 28-year-old Dutch backpacker Kai um, feels like a cool drink. So many coconuts around. So he sits under a palm tree out the front of the ABC Kimberley office on Hammersley Street and slices open two fresh coconuts with his machete. They're coconuts that he's harvested himself as he helps broom locals clean up their yards ahead of the cyclone season. If the cyclone comes, the, 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 the loose coconuts, they'll fly around, they'll smash your cars, windows, everything, and it can be really dangerous. And I've especially like people with families, like they're really concerned with, you know, kids playing in the garden and the coconut. In fact, you know, like it can fall anytime, like at some point. And people are really uh, afraid of that. Kai was working in Broome as a surf lifesaver, but with the life-saving season over, he's turned his attention to a passion that developed during COVID. I found my passion in climbing coconut trees. <laughs> Last time I was talking to my friend as well, like apparently <laughs> uh, there are a few levels for male, for men, you know, like uh, it's a statistic, like what raises the testosterone level, like uh, and... Um, Climbing trees is in the top five, like, so. And I'm like, uh, yeah. (laughs) I think that's the thing of it. What do you feel when you're up at those heights, when you've climbed as high as you can in a coconut tree? What are you feeling? Yeah, how do you feel? Like it's it's just it, it just gives us kick. This the raise the dopamine levels. Like some people they drink coffee. Like probably the same how people drink coffee. You come down and you're like, first of all, you're grateful that you're <laughs> you're down, but then you're like I don't know, like you score a last minute goal and you win with the team. Like this kind of kind of feeling that 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 direction. Like ah, oh, I love it. Further south in Exmouth, cyclone preparations are also well underway. Oh, the, the team do an amazing job of it. They've got it down pat. Every year we 
take it off the uh, off its stand at the visitors centre or the the art gallery now, where where it isn't right in the middle of town. Um, lay it on the on its mattress, on its big foam mattress, and go and put it away in the storage shed. Um, there's a lot involved in it. You've got to be very careful because it is quite quite fragile. A, a huge big fiberglass replica of a of a prawn. Yep, the big prawn, an Exmouth icon who, as Shire President Matthew Nicola explains, spends the cyclone season safe and secure. Uh, the Shire has a, a big storage shed in the middle of town. It was the old um, Horizon Power powerhouse a long time ago. Um, so they use it. it. It's obviously been there for a long time. It is a cyclone-rated shelter, and they store a, a lot of um, outdoor things during the cyclone season in in that shelter. The big prawn, because it's got such a big operation about doing it and making sure that we don't damage it, um, so it's not the sort of thing you want to do at the last minute when a cyclone is imminent. The fact that it is so, such a uh, a beautiful structure and such a such a uh, delicate one that we make sure we get it away straight away at the beginning of cyclone season and we'll bring it out again in March and put it back prior to place. In WA's northernmost town, Wyndham, supermarket manager Sheree Timms is stocking up to prepare for possible road closures in the coming months. We're lucky enough to have a bit of storage space so we can have rice and tin veggies and all that sort of thing um, extra so that if we are cut off, as happens on the odd occasion, we are not going to run out of um, stuff for people to eat. Thankfully, Broome hasn't run out of coconuts, and Kai and I still have some drinks to finish. You enjoying it? I am enjoying it. I'm going to have another sip. Eddie Williams with that story from Broome, and that is Australia-wide for this Tuesday. I hope you're having a great weekend, and I'll speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.